please turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we're going to be considering a rather lengthy passage this evening. The first 22 verses, really one scene here in the book of Acts. But it's important that as we consider this text tonight that we remember and we consider its context. If your Bible's open there before you, you can see there at the beginning of chapter 3 that Peter healed this lame beggar. Peter healed this man and he was completely restored and found walking and leaping and praising God and everyone gathered together in the temple around him and they gave glory to God for what had happened to him. As you continue on there in chapter 3, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, we see that Peter then used that as an opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. His good deed was not isolated from, but rather a product of the good news of Jesus Christ, and he took that opportunity to make that crystal clear. In his gospel presentation, he preached about how in the gospel, what is offered to us is repentance from sin, the forgiveness of sins, refreshment that comes from the very presence of Christ, and then that promise of a future restoration of all things. Truly uh, amazing good news. Good news that is so good that it is sometimes hard to believe. Well, we pick up this evening at chapter 4, and if your eyes are there on the text, you'll see that chapter 4 begins saying, And as they were speaking to the people, immediately upon the preaching of the gospel, we find that the gospel is opposed by this world. Wherever the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, wherever it abides among God's people, it will face the opposition of this world. And so we're going to learn tonight how it is that we as God's people are to expect opposition and then by God's grace to answer that opposition. So let's give our careful attention to God's word. This is Acts chapter 4, the first 22 verses. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. 
And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of, because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Amen. This is God's word. Please bow with me to prayer. Lord God in heaven, this is your holy word, and you teach us in this word that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we come, we come humbling ourselves before you and before your word, asking that you would bless us by this word. Lord, we love the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love that you have given it to us. And yet we see here in your word tonight that the gospel of Jesus Christ will be opposed at every point along the way. And as your people, as those entrusted with the gospel, as those given the great commission, Lord, we need to know how to face this opposition. We need to know how to face it as a body, corporately, and we need to know how to face it individually as well. And so we come asking that you will teach us tonight, that you will equip us to answer such opposition to the praise and glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, almost every time I drive on I-25, I marvel at how so many individual drivers and independent cars can be flying along at 75 miles an hour or more without interruption. Now, I know that sometimes there are major interruptions, but on the whole, most of the time, traffic flows relatively unhindered. I find it rather amazing. Why is this? How is it that hundreds of cars can simultaneously navigate the same terrain without always creating chaos? What we witness whenever this occurs is the visible evidence of invisible realities. What we witness when this occurs is the visible evidence of laws that have been put in place to orchestrate such incredible cooperation. These orderly movements of traffic evidence the existence of an agreed-upon body of laws that govern the way that we use the road. And so what we witness is the visible evidence of unseen realities. Well, here in our text this evening, what we witness is the visible evidence of other unseen realities. What we need to see in the text is what is, seen, what is unseen in the life of those in the text. First of all, we witness this immediate and increasing opposition to the preaching of Jesus Christ. 
We see this unseen opposition. It arises from an unseen place, this opposition to the gospel. But we also see, as a counterbalance to it, this supernatural boldness of the apostles' answer. So what accounts for both this opposition and what accounts for its answer? Well, we need to consider some of the context to understand what is taking place here in chapter 4. Back in chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, if you were to read that text, you will read of the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And in that chapter, what you will see is how the church experienced new life, rich preaching and teaching, satisfying fellowship and joyful worship. The experience of the Holy Spirit was both expansive and expulsive. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit drove God's people out into this world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Acts chapter 2 demanded Acts chapter 3. Then going on into Acts chapter C, we see how the church took the gospel of Jesus out into a needy world. Infused with the power of the Holy Spirit, these new believers went out into the world to put on display the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Peter and John healed the legs of that lame man by Christ's design, it became the perfect opportunity for them to preach the gospel to thousands more. And so Acts chapter 2 provided for Acts chapter 3, but then all of what occurred in Acts chapter 3, that great proclamation of the gospel, that created the events here, Acts chapter 4. As the church went out into the world to proclaim the gospel, we see that it immediately faced opposition. You see, whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, whenever the church is on mission, she will inevitably face opposition. Now, this opposition, on the one hand, is actually a sign that the Spirit is at work. As one commentator put it, the world will tolerate the church when it is the type of church that it finds tolerable. This commentator went on to say that the type of church that the world finds tolerable is one that is qualifying and compromising, one that is willing to waver or to change regarding whatever the world finds to be intolerable. Well, you won't find that church in the book of Acts. No, instead, as you see here in Acts chapter 4, and as you see throughout the rest of the book of Acts, the church instead is actually always facing opposition Sometimes that opposition is external, as it is here in our text. It's a, an opposing force from outside of this believing group of God's people. But at other times, it's actually internal. We'll consider some of that even tonight. But either way, whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, the church will inevitably be opposed by unseen enemies. Well, the unseen is not only evidenced in, its, in this opposition, but the unseen is also evidenced in the unnatural or the supernatural way that we see response to that opposition. Here in our text, we see that Peter responds out of character, but to the praise and glory of God. And since God has made it our mission to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost world, what do we need to learn now tonight about opposition? Well, first of all, we need to learn or we must learn to expect opposition. We must learn to expect opposition. Look at how our text begins. And as they were speaking to the people, 
Or in other words, while Peter and John were still preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of their preaching of the gospel, they are interrupted with this opposition. The text tells us that the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. They heard Peter's preaching and they took decisive action in order to interrupt it. They were greatly annoyed, as the text put it, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now we need to notice that they are not annoyed because a lame man was made well. They are not annoyed because of the good that Peter and John had done for this community. No, they are annoyed because of the preaching of Jesus Christ. They are annoyed because Peter is proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This is why they were arrested and then kept in custody overnight. After being kept in custody overnight, notice how many show up to confront Peter and John. The text reads, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Everyone, it seems, who could show up did show up. Everyone who could show up did show up because they have a, a, a shared opposition to the preaching of Jesus Christ. They have a shared interest in ending Peter and John's preaching. Everyone shows up, and so Peter and John suddenly find themselves standing in front of this intimidating assembly, and they're expected to give an answer. So this text teaches us to expect immediate opposition. It was, after all, while Peter and John were still preaching that this opposition first appeared. And we see how this opposition used everything at their disposal to put an end to Peter's preaching. Notice that their inquiry here is about authority. They ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? This group that has gathered is concerned about authority. They are concerned about authority because they do not want to recognize the authority of King Jesus. The issue of authority is very often at the core of any opposition to Jesus. Again, no one is upset that this lame man was made well. No one is upset or losing sleep over this good that was suddenly done within their community. But the very second that Peter preaches concerning the authority of King Jesus, then he has a problem. Then the community gathers in opposition against them. Well, brothers and sisters, the same remains true today. This principle has not changed. It hasn't changed since Peter preached, and it will remain the same until Christ returns. This world will not be bothered if we do good within the community, but it will be bothered when it comes to preaching about the authority, the extent of Christ's authority in this world. It is then that they will object. Now, as the church, we ought to be doing great good for our communities. But as God's word here commends to us, there is, there, it ought to be accompanied by a clear and corresponding proclamation regarding the authority of King Jesus. The immediate opposition here revealed that the core issue is authority. And so while we should expect this immediate opposition, our text also teaches us to expect persistent opposition. 
This opposition began as a simple inquiry about authority. But notice, when they find Peter's answer to be insufficient, what began as a simple inquiry then develops into strong warnings and even intimidating threats. In an attempt to keep the preaching of Jesus from spreading any further, they warned them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They charged them to speak or not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And they didn't simply stop at warning them or charging them. The text says that even after warning and charging them, they went on to threaten them further. If it weren't for their fear of public opinion, the Sanhedrin would have pursued further punishments for Peter and John. And so we see that this opposition also increased. So we need to learn not only to expect an immediate opposition to the gospel, but an increasing opposition to the gospel. Whenever the church refuses to soften the claims of Christ, opposition will only and inevitably increase. Jesus told his disciples to expect such opposition. He told them plainly in John chapter 16, in the world, you will have tribulation. So expecting opposition we need to purposely prepare for it. So how do we do so? Well, we're going to consider more of that answer here in a moment. But for now, let's just simply make this one observation. We need to remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This perspective is what allows Peter and John to go on here in our text preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, he wrote so that the church may put on the whole armor of God in order to stand against the schemes of our enemy. We need to understand that whenever we face opposition as the church, whenever we face opposition in the proclamation of King Jesus, we need to remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. As Paul wrote, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Whenever we face opposition, we need to learn to look past people so that we can gain perspective by way of what we cannot see. Because opposition appears in so many forms. In our text today, it's external. It is the Sanhedrin that has come to attack this group of believers. It's an attack from the outside. But if you were to go on reading throughout the book of Acts, in the next two chapters, you actually see that this opposition takes the form of an internal threat. In the next chapter, it takes the form of hypocrisy from within the church. And then in the following chapter, the opposition takes the form of division that results from jealousy within the church. Opposition takes so many forms, but we must be careful to see it as it really is. Listen, whenever you mislabel or misdiagnose something, you inevitably mishandle or mistreat it. We must identify opposition well. We need to identify opposition as it really is. So, when we look through the lens of God's word, we see that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We do not wrestle with one another, and we do not wrestle with the people of this world. No, we wrestle against actual unseen forces. 
And it is this perspective that is essential to give us what we need to look past people to see what is really at work. This perspective reminds us to put off our personal perspectives. This perspective helps us not to take things personally and instead to put on what God has provided so that we might stand against the schemes of our enemies. Only if we identify opposition as it really is will we then go to God's word to put on the whole armor of God. Only then will we put on the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and prayer. Whenever you mislabel or misdiagnose something, you inevitably mishandle or mistreat it. And so whenever we face opposition, whatever form we may find it in, we must be careful to identify it for what it really is so that we can utilize the resources that God has given to stand firm against the opposition of our enemy. That's what we see Peter doing here in our text. Peter and John were able to see things as they really were, and because of this, they were, ina- they were enabled to endure opposition to the glory of God. Just think about Peter and John standing there before the whole Sanhedrin. It's hard to imagine these men From a human perspective, it's hard to imagine them filled with anything other than an absolutely paralyzing fear. He was arrested and kept in custody overnight, and then everyone, it seems, came out against them. They had nowhere, no way to prepare for all of this. So let's consider how these men responded. God's word teaches us to expect opposition, but it also teaches us how to answer opposition. When Jesus was arrested, Peter denied him three times. The third denial was the worst. A servant girl identified Peter as one of the disciples, but then Peter denied even knowing Jesus. He called down a curse upon himself. Here in our text, in the greatest of contrasts, Peter is arrested. Peter is arrested. And far from denying Jesus, here he is proclaiming him powerfully. So what explains that kind of transformation? What explains the transformation of a man from cowardly to courageous? To answer this question, we need to observe how Peter answered this opposition. Initially, this opposition appeared in the form of an inquiry. By what power or by what name did you do this? They inquired of Peter, and so Peter answered. And I love the way that he answered Get this, they arrested Peter for preaching about Jesus. And then they inquired of him, and they gave him the opportunity to open his mouth. And so what does he do? He preaches Jesus. He was arrested for preaching Jesus. He knows what they are opposed to. And he stands up in their presence, and he boldly proclaims again, King Jesus. Peter is no longer cowardly. Suddenly, this man is absolutely courageous. Now, notice this. Peter intentionally ties together his contribution to the community and the claims of King Jesus. He says, these two things go together. The good I've done within the community is a result of the good news of Jesus Christ. He said, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, 
Then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter understands that this opposition is aimed at the exclusive claims of King Jesus. This opposition is not aimed at the good that he has done within the community, but they will demand a complete silence if Peter ties that contribution to the authority of Jesus. Peter is courageous and uncompromising. He has asked by what authority or by what name, and he answers so clearly, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man is standing before you well. Peter knows what they are demanding, and he refuses to give in to their demand. He continues preaching Jesus even as he knows that is the very reason why he was arrested. But he takes it another step further. There's even more here. He confronts them in their sin. He says, you crucified the Christ. And God raised him from the dead. The very thing they hated to hear, Peter proclaims to them. He references Psalm 118. This Jesus, is, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Everyone that Peter is preaching to at this point is very familiar with Psalm 118. They knew Psalm 118, but get this. When they had sung it or when they had read it, they had always thought of those builders who rejected this cornerstone as someone else. They would have never imagined what Peter has just proclaimed. You are the builders, and you have rejected the cornerstone. Our text tells us that when Peter first preached, they were annoyed. Now, no doubt, they are filled with fury. In the midst of all of this, Peter, seeing things as they really are, then proclaims Jesus Christ in no uncertain terms. Confronting them with their sin, he then says to them, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When this man, Peter, was self-preserving, he cowered in fear before a simple servant girl, denying that he ever knew Jesus. But here he is, and suddenly he's self-forgetful. Suddenly he's self-sacrificing, and he proclaims Jesus Christ as the only salvation for these sinners. That is Peter's initial answer to their initial inquiry. By what power or name? He says, I will tell you. It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and he is the only one to save you from your sins. Well, hearing him, the text says they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceiving that they were uneducated common men, they are absolutely astonished. Well, as I noted earlier, their initial opposition then developed into a persistent opposition. Because they could not answer Peter and John personally, they excused them from their presence so that they could discuss this matter among themselves. As they discussed this matter among themselves, they realized there is no denying the truth of what Peter is proclaiming. 
because the evidence, this lame man who was healed, he is standing there next to Peter and John. Everyone knows what Peter is preaching is true. The truth is evident to all. And yet these still hope to contain the spread of this good news of Jesus Christ. And so they take another tactic. They call Peter and John in and they charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Essentially, they say, do all of the good within the community that you want to do. Just don't do so in his name. Well, that persistence in opposition called forth a persistence in an answer from Peter and John. And you can tell their minds were already made up. They knew what was coming. They simply say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Their minds were already made up. They were living in light of reality. Peter and John were convicted and unwavering. I need you to notice tonight how Peter and John view this opposition as an opportunity. Temptation might tell these men, let's be wise and winsome. Now is no time to fight. Let's just comply for now so that we can quietly go on our way and maybe share Jesus in a corner over there. But Peter and John cannot do that. But why? Well, the answer is because Peter and John are living in light of reality. They are walking with their eyes closed to the things of this world, but the eyes of faith set upon reality. Jesus has died upon the cross. He has received all authority in heaven and on earth. He has ascended on high. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father where he is ruling and reigning over all things. And now the Sanhedrin command them not to speak in that name. Peter and John see things as they really are. With the eyes of faith, they see in front of them a room full of lost souls. They see a room of people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with the eyes of faith, they look up higher to see King Jesus seated upon his throne. And so seeing things as they really are, they cannot help but preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter and John preach the gospel, but they do so at great personal cost. Because when the Sanhedrin hear them, they threaten them further. And so Peter and John walk out of that room that day as marked men. Targets have been placed upon their backs. So let's think about Peter specifically. How has this come to pass? This is the same man who denied Jesus three times. This is the same man who invoked a curse upon himself as he denied even knowing Jesus. But here he is, refusing to remain silent in the face of warnings and threats. He knows his life is on the line, whether now or someday here in the future. His life is on the line, but he is going to preach Jesus anyways. How has this happened? How has this cowardly man been transformed into an, an incredibly courageous man? How has this man been made bold? Well, the answer to these questions are found in three phrases found within the text. 
three phrases that teach us all that we need to know about answering all opposition. First of all, look at verse 8. There it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, What takes an ordinary man like you and me, fearful, insecure, self-preserving, far too concerned about what others think and what might happen to us, what takes an ordinary man like you and me and makes him absolutely bold about Jesus? Well, God's word is clear. It has nothing to do with that man. And it has everything to do with his Holy Spirit. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, so Peter was filled with Jesus. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, so Peter was emptied of himself. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with Jesus, emptied of himself, and so Peter proclaimed Jesus powerfully, despite whatever it might mean for him personally. So why is that? Why is Peter filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, that leads us to the second phrase, which is found in verse 12. It's really the whole verse. Peter proclaimed, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That truth gives to Peter a single-minded focus for his life. Everything is focused for Peter because of that gospel truth. What accounts for Peter's boldness? At the core of what accounts for Peter's boldness is his belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is Peter willing to risk his life to preach the gospel to this lost room who hate him? Well, it's because he knows that there is indeed no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. He knows that that room standing in front of him is filled with lost souls, which will be eternally condemned if they do not come to know Christ. And this is why Peter can preach as a dying man to dying men. He knows that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so as one who is personally secure in Christ, he is now willing to lay down his life in the hopes that some might hear and call upon Christ. Peter is absolutely laser-focused and bold because he rests secure in the gospel of Jesus Christ and he knows that that is the one truth that everyone else needs to hear. There is one more key to Peter's boldness. Seeing the boldness of Peter and John, the Sanhedrin recognized that they had been with Jesus. This means that when the Sanhedrin looked upon Peter and John, they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus in what these men were all about, and what these men were proclaiming, and how they said it, and how they were living, and how they were willing to risk their lives to preach to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had been with Jesus, and Jesus had clearly left his imprint upon them. Brothers and sisters, these are three aspects or three keys to responding to opposition. This is how the church responded to opposition then, and this is how we are to respond to all opposition today. These are the keys to facing all sorts, every kind of opposition for the sake of the gospel. Three keys, the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the filling of the Holy Spirit, and communion with Christ. These are the keys to all of the Christian life. I want you to think about Peter and John here in our text. As we went back and reviewed, beginning in chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple one day, and then we see everything that unfolds. We see this miraculous healing, this incredible preaching of the gospel, and then their arrest in chapter 4. It's all rather extraordinary. But if we go back to the end of Acts chapter 2, there we are told, remember Acts chapter 2, the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, at the end of that chapter, we are told that that fellowship of believers attended to the temple day by day. Why did they do this? Well, it is because they were filled with Jesus Christ and they were personally overwhelmed with the good news of Jesus Christ. And they needed others to hear of him. They were eager to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And so day by day, they were filled with the Spirit. They were emptied of themselves and they were communing with Christ and with one another. And then they were eager to proclaim Jesus from day to day. You see, day by day, this fellowship of believers was simply living the ordinary Christian life. And we need to mark that well. What happens in our text seems so extraordinary. But it all happened as believers were simply living the ordinary Christian life. Daily, they were rejoicing in the gospel. Daily, they were seeking to walk by the Spirit. And daily they were communing with Jesus Christ and with his people. They were simply living the ordinary Christian life. And then something extraordinary happened one day according to God's sovereignty. So this is the key to the Christian life. This is the key to the advancement of the gospel. This is the key to answering all opposition. We should expect opposition. We should expect opposition and be careful to see it as it really is. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And knowing this, we can then commit ourselves to the ordinary Christian life, to daily clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to daily relying upon the Holy Spirit, and to daily cultivating a deeper communion with Jesus Christ. This is it. These are the keys to answering all opposition, the ordinary Christian life. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do thank you that you, Lord Jesus, you taught us by way of your disciples that we ought to expect opposition We know that the good news of Jesus Christ will be opposed until you return. And so expecting this opposition, we pray that we might learn here from your word how to answer all opposition. Lord, let us learn to look beyond people and to gain perspective that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Lord, even as we wrestle against actual unseen forces, We pray that we might commit ourselves to what you have provided to answering all opposition. Lord, we pray that we might wake each day 
and not move on to the first task of the day until we have rejoiced afresh in the good news of Jesus Christ. We would not go on to other things until we have sought the filling of the Holy Spirit. Until we have sought that that day we might keep in step with the Spirit and walk according to the Spirit. And that we would not set out that day until we have communed with you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you might focus us again and bless us with that ordinary Christian life. Ordinary only in the sense that it is available to us all day and every day. Yet extraordinary in that we sinners can be blessed in such an extraordinary way. Lord, we pray that as we continue on in this pilgrim journey, you might focus us and strengthen us again with these rich blessings. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.